right? Well, I think the text we're looking at today is totally of God. You guys know where we are? We're coming to the end of Romans 8. So, I mean, some have kind of said that Romans as a book is, is maybe the climax to the whole Bible. And then that Romans 8 is the climax of the book of Romans. Well, then these verses that we're going to look at today are probably the climax to the climax to the climax. I mean, we are looking at the, the, the pinnacle, the peak of Scripture today. And uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start at verse 18, just for context. And we're going to look mainly at verses 26 to the end. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And we do not even know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes us, intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Isn't that a cool thought, just even in light of today? And we know that in all things, God works. For the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who is condemned for us, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God right now and interceding for us? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. 
Last Saturday, I, I did a funeral for Nicole Buchel, and I don't know if any of you know her. She, she's gone to our church uh, really right from the beginning, and she died after an eight-year-long battle with cancer. And so I'm stepping into this, and I'm looking at the mom who was even widowed several years before this. And all alone now, lost her her only child. I'm meeting uh, nurses and doctors who are there who who so love Nicole. And just hearing their stories. And all that they see on the ninth floor at the Children's Hospital downtown. I mean, they face death all day long. And then I even met Nicole's friends. You know, when you spend eight years battling cancer... Most of your friends are, are cancer patients. So here they are. And I was, I was just reminded of the intense groans that Romans 8 speaks about. We live in a world that is groaning. Our world is in pain. It's in enormous pain. And this world, it's not as God intended it to be when he created it. Because it's sick. It's sick with this tumor. And as a result, it's given over to this bondage to decay. And as we learned last time, not only does creation groan, but we too groan. And Christians are not exempt from this in any way. We're, We're not above the world's groanings. And I don't know if you noticed this, but look at how Paul says this. He says, we groan... Inwardly, meaning the, the tumor is, it's not just out there. The tumor is right now in here. And as a result of that, this is, this is my reality. Yes, while I've been brought from death to life, while I have the spirit in me, that raised Christ from the dead, I still live in fallen me. I still live in this fallen, unredeemed body that still sins, still suffers, and will eventually die. And you're like, I came here this morning to hear that. Well, that's, that, that's biblical reality. And, and you look at verses 24 and 25, and, and Paul says this, He says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? He says, but we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it patiently. And see, what Paul is saying here is, we don't have yet everything God promised. And that's why we wait. And that's why we groan. And there are Christians today who say we have it all right now. And I just want to say to them, well, you're living in this, this unbiblical la-la land. And it's what I call this over-realized eschatology. It's, it's bringing too much of the promised future into the present. And here's the result of us doing that. We no longer groan. For the things that Paul is groaning for. Paul is groaning 
that the future, the promised future would come into the present. And it's this, it's this Maranatha. Come Lord, come. And I wish we had more of that. But now Paul gives us some awesome realities in Romans 8. Because as we groan and as we wait, Paul says this. He says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Meaning that God's holy presence, His Holy Spirit, or as Paul describes it, the Spirit of Christ right now makes His home in us. And we get the first taste of the resurrection. And we're, we're the first to experience this incredible reality as we groan. And what we've learned so far is really two things that the Holy Spirit does when he makes his home in us. The first is this. In my Romans 7, struggle with sin, the Holy Spirit, he comes into my life and he shines the spotlight on the beauty of Jesus and what Jesus has done for me. And he says, Rod, do you see it? There's no more condemnation. And see, my heart still plays this game. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And, and the reason the Holy Spirit comes into my life is to say, no, Rod, it's not he loves me. He loves me not, Rod. It's he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And you see Christ and you see what he's done for you. There is no more, no more condemnation. And see, the second thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes into our heart, and this is more in light of my Romans 8 groanings, is he testifies with my spirit that God is more than my creator, more than my judge, more than the ruler, more than even savior and redeemer, but that the God of the universe is is my father. And that God picked me the same way a man looks at a homeless orphan and says, you're mine and you're going to be in my family and you're going to eat at my table and you're going to be a son to me. See, now when these two realities burn in my heart, it's not my performing that's ever going to change me. It's knowing who and whose I am that changes me. That there's no more condemnation And hearing the whispers of the Spirit saying to me, My son, my son, in whom I delight, in whom I'm well pleased. That's what changes a person. See, God changes our heart, not by hammering it, but by melting it. And see, now we learn today, as we read further in Romans 8, that it doesn't even stop here. But the Spirit comes in and gives us even more. Look at verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is interceding for the saints in accordance with God's will. (laughs) The Spirit comes in, makes his home in us, and he helps us in our weakness. I want to stop right now and ask a question. Do you know weakness? Are you a person who can show weakness? Thank you, Dave and Beth. 
for, for being this this morning. You come up here and you show your weakness. Can you show your desperation? What's wrong with us? Why do we feel like we always have to be strong and have everything together? Why can't we show weakness? I'll tell you why. Because we've been raised in a culture that doesn't do weakness. That has told you from the moment you are young, be strong. Show yourself to be strong. Don't you dare show weakness. And see, in our culture, it's all about might and strength. It's about my might and my strength. But see, when you read the scriptures, I mean, this thing ought to just jump out at us. Because what you see in scripture is God's heart. And you see that God's heart is so drawn to the needy and to the weak and those who can admit need and weakness and how his heart is so intrinsically bound to the weak and to the poor and to those who mourn and to those who hunger. And on the flip side, how his heart is just repulsed by pride. And I believe in light of this text, there are two things that just rob us of this incredible experience of the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness. One is self-sufficiency and the other is self-righteousness, and they're both ugly forms of pride. And self-sufficiency, in light of Romans 6, 7, and 8, is, is thinking that we can overcome our Romans 8 groaning through our own might, through our own power, and our own strength. And self-righteousness is thinking that we can overcome our Romans 7, oh, what a wretched man that I am, through our own effort and our own righteousness. In fact, one of the things I've even noticed going around in this community as, as we seek to be a community that wants to be wholehearted for the Lord, we, we, we slip into kind of treating this like a basketball team. And people then want to become like the, the spiritual star athlete. I'm going to tell you something. God doesn't move towards the spiritual superstars. Stop that. God moves towards the poor in spirit. To those who look at themselves and say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm a beggar. That's who God moves towards. In fact, you know what prayer is at the core? Prayer is not just kind of rubbing the genie bottle and getting what we need. Prayer, it's weakness. Prayer is our admission to God. God, I'm weak. I'm helpless. It's our cry to God that I can't do this, that I desperately need you right now. And here's what I want us to know. Without weakness, without the admission of weakness, there will never be the experience of the Spirit helping us. And that's why Paul can say what he says in 2 Corinthians 12. He actually caves in to the Corinthian church who wants him to boast and give his resume. And finally he says, okay, you want my resume? You want me to boast? I'll boast. I will boast about this. 
I, Paul, am weak. In fact, what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, you know, even to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And I pleaded with him to take it away. But God said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my power, Paul, is made perfect, not in strength, but my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, listen to this, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Why? Why, Paul? Because when I'm weak and I'm strong, it's not by might, it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And see, this is the cool thought about these verses, 24 and 25, that that right now, not in our strength, not in our might, but in our weakness, the spirit right now is praying for you. He's interceding for you with groans too deep for words. (laughs) Catch that word? There it is again, groan. We learn that creation groans. We learn that we groan. And, and now we learn that the spirit groans. Now, I want to be um, sensitive to my charismatic friends. While I believe that the Bible endorses the speaking in tongues today, I don't think that's what this text is about. Because this is not talking about a sound we make. This is the spirit praying, praying for us. So think about this, those times when you're in pain, where you're spiritually dry, where you're so up to your eyeballs in difficulty and suffering that you don't even know how to pray anymore. The Spirit just swoops in. And the Bible says that He starts praying and interceding for us. And He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and He brings those requests to the throne. What's going on right now? And then I think about what this word groan actually means. And we learned this last time. Groan is, is, is someone who's in pain, in, in enormous pain, kind of like a woman in childbirth or, or a dying soldier on the battlefield. And so I think to myself, wow, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit right now is doing for me and doing for you. He's groaning like that. And then I'm kind of left asking this week as I'm thinking about that, well, then how can a all-powerful, immortal, immutable God experience groaning. I mean, isn't he above this? No. That's the beautiful truth of the Bible, is that we believe in a God who groans. Our God is a groaning God. In fact, God comes into our groaning world, and he groans with us. In fact, I love that in Mark 7, when Jesus comes, comes to this man who's, who's deaf and mute, and Jesus just looks at him, he sees all the suffering, and the Bible says when he sees this guy, he sighed. Oh, that's the same word for groan. And then Jesus on the cross, he's probably quoting Psalm 22 where he says, my God, my God, why is it that you have forsaken me? 
In fact, some scholars think that he didn't just stop with that little clause. But when you read Psalm 22, he probably is quoting the whole thing. So listen to how Psalm 22 verse 1 reads. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Our God is groaning on the cross because he's absorbing in that moment the world's evil. And think about that. In this moment, he's being abandoned by God. And you know why he's being abandoned by God? You need to know this because it seems almost cruel. In that moment of greatest need, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason God abandons him is so that God will never abandon us in our groaning. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is this, that God abandoned him so that he will never abandon us. So that when we groan and when we suffer and when we cry out in pain, or maybe even scream out like Job, we can be assured right now that God hears those groans in the same way a parent hears her child crying. And right now we can know, as Paul says, that the Spirit is groaning with us and he's groaning for us. And he's asking God exactly what we need. It's awesome. And so you know what I say to you right now in light of all this? And I say it to myself. Stop giving to God your strength and your merit and your religion and start giving to God your weakness and your desperation and your groans. And I think that as we learn to do that more, we're going to experience the Holy Spirit helping us in ways we've never seen. It still doesn't stop here. Romans 8. As we groan, look at verse 28. And we know that in all, thing God, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I think this might be one of the most loved and misunderstood verses in the Bible. Because I think the way we take this oftentimes is this. We say, okay, for those who love God, God works all, those, all things for good. And the first thing we need to ask is, well, what is all things? What does Paul mean when he says all things? Well, all the things that happen to everyone else are also going to happen to us. I mean, look at verse 35. Paul lays out what some of these things are. Trouble, hardship, famine, nakedness, and sword. These things that happen to everybody else are probably going to happen not only to Christians, but more. And so then many people take Romans 28 to mean this then, that because I love God, that my circumstances will be better or my life will be better. So you lose the job, well, then you say to yourself, well, because God's working everything for good, God must have a better job for me. Or you lose the girlfriend, well, you just think, well, I lost the girlfriend, well, God must have a better girlfriend in store for me. You lose your, what do you say to Nicole's mom? She just lost her daughter. Oh, but God's going to work this all for good. He must have something better for you. 
See, that's not the promise. The promise is not better circumstances. It's not even a better life. The promised good here is a better you. In fact, I think our biggest problem right now, it's not our circumstances, whatever our circumstances may be. You might think that's your biggest problem. You might think that's what needs the most changing. But the really, the, your biggest problem right now, and the thing that needs the most changing is you and your character. And the older I get, the more I see this, that circumstances can't destroy your life. Nearly as bad as what your character can. You see, our real problem is our foolishness or our laziness or our bitterness or our self-centeredness or our pride or our need to be in control. These are the, this, this is what needs to be changed. And so then when you look at verse 29, the next verse, you see this little word for. And what four does in the Bible is it always connects us with the previous verse. So verse 29 connects us with verse 28. And, and here in verse 29, then Paul spells out the good that God is working for. And this is the good he's working for. Look at it. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's the good right there that God's working all things for. In fact, that word conformed is the Greek word morphed. And I believe that God is utterly committed to changing us and that God will stop at nothing and allow nothing to get in, our, in his way until our transformation reflects the beauty of Jesus. Growing up, um, I, ha- I had an older brother and I had a few teachers and even coaches who uh, would tell me, you know, you're, you, Rod, you're, you're nothing like your older brother. <laughs> and you know, sometimes that kind of statement can hurt a little bit, can it? You know what? When I read this passage, someday I'm going to be just like my big brother. I'm going to be conformed my big brother, Jesus. And and God is, he's working all things right now in my life and in your life to this end. I mean, a prime example of this in the scriptures, and you can see these, these all over the place, but Joseph, I mean, Joseph at the very end of his life, and we can look at his life and think, wow, this guy's way on top and, and all of that. But he makes this statement to his brothers and he says, you know what you intended for evil because they tried to hurt him and destroy him and take him out. God says what you intended for evil, God intended for great good. And see, when you read the Joseph story, Joseph kind of starts walking on the scene as this cocky, smug, insensitive, conceited little punk what he is and and you need to ask yourself this question well how does god change a guy like that and the answer is simply this he breaks him and that's why god puts joseph in pits and in prisons and strips him of his family and all his security and his comfort so that by the end of the joseph story we see a changed man and a changed heart 
And see, I know some of you right now are probably looking at your life and you're just asking yourself, okay, now what kind of good can God actually bring out of these circumstances? See, and it always goes back to this question of why. Why, God? Why would you allow this? Why all the groaning? Why all the difficulty? In fact, recently in our house church, we were discussing this very question. Why? Why does God allow bad things? In fact, when you talk about this and think about this long enough, then it always goes to a deeper place. Why did God even make this world at all? Have you ever asked that question? Well, let me just ask you this question. Tell me what's better. A restored to perfect world or a perfect world that's always been perfect? Or apply that to your life. I mean, what's better? A restored to perfect life or a life that's always been perfect? See, in my opinion, it's not even close. I think a restored to perfect world and a restored to perfect life is infinitely greater than a world or a life that's always been perfect. Because think about it. In a world that's never been nothing but perfect, would you have such things as courage or bravery? Would you have self-sacrifice? Would there be the heroic act or the heroic life? Would there be this, this, this greater love that a man lay down his life for his friends? Would there be the joy of seeing something healed? Or the sweetness of reconciliation? Or the experience of something so broken being restored? There'd never be a cross. There'd never be a resurrection. And see, when we look at Jesus, Jesus is our supreme example because you look at his whole life. I mean, he's despised, he's rejected, he's misunderstood. It's one suffering after another culminating in the brutal pain and agony of the cross. Or he's even abandoned by his father. And I think about the disciples that day. They're probably thinking to themselves, you know what, this is the very worst. This is the worst thing ever. Think about it, out of the darkest moment in history, God brought the greatest good. And his darkness led to light. His death led to resurrection. His poverty led to the greatest of all riches. His, his weakness led to the greatest of all strengths. His suffering led to the greatest of all glory. Because that's what the gospel does. It, it's the only thing that does this in the world. Is it just turns the tables on things like sin, suffering, and death. Because in the gospel, God exchanges my sin for his righteousness. And he exchanges my suffering for Christ's likeness. And he exchanges my death for a resurrection. And see, what always amazes me, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you and I could see Jesus right now in his post-resurrection glorified state of perfection, we would see that Jesus still bears the scars. Think about that. That God didn't just erase all of that as if it had never happened. Instead, those scars that Jesus bears, as John says in in, in Revelation chapter 5, 
I looked thinking I was going to see the lion of Judah. And when I looked, I saw a lamb as if he had been slain. That's the glorified Christ. God didn't erase those scars. Because those scars are part of the greatness of the glorified Jesus. So just think right now about your wounds or the wounds that you have inflicted on other people. I mean, here's the greatness of God's gospel, that God's not just going to snap his fingers someday and erase all of this as if it had never happened, but instead all of it's going to be seen to the cross and it's going to be taken up in the hope of the resurrection and the hope of the glory of what you and I are becoming. And that you and I will be infinitely greater as if our suffering had never happened. Even our failures, even our sins, and the mistakes that we've made. See, God isn't just erasing our failures, but he's turning our failures into humility and Christ-likeness. And he's not getting rid of our hurt, but he's turning our hurts into wisdom. And I don't know about you, but I can already see this in my life. I've put scars in my life. I've scarred other people. And I know those scars never really go away. But what I do know is that God is spinning all of this into his glory. And he's weaving this into something much greater than even I can see right now. And that's why I no longer see suffering as much as I dislike it and sometimes detest it. Suffering is not the enemy. Suffering is the means by which God is morphing me into the beauty of Jesus. Do you know that? I mean, Paul just says this in just a few chapters before in Revelation or in Romans chapter five, verse three. He says, "He says not only so, but we also rejoice." In our sufferings. Thank you, Marcia, for praying that today. For saying thank you. Because it's biblical. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings, for we know <laughs> that the suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So it starts with suffering, and it ends with And see, then that's why when we come through the end, we're left saying how Romans 8, 28 begins. We know. It's not we have our fingers crossed. It's not even that we think. It's we absolutely know that God is working. He's orchestrating all things. Every pit, every dungeon, every famine, every wound, every weakness, every failure every cross for great good. And this is why when we suffer, we can have this calm assurance that Jesus suffered, not so we wouldn't have to suffer, but that when we suffer and we look to him and rely upon him and thank him and bless him, we're going to become like him. And we're going to be infinitely greater had it never happened. At Nicole's funeral, this uh, 
physician's assistant that I spoke with for a while afterward, she blew me away. Because when I was talking to her, she also said that she was once a cancer survivor. Well, she is a cancer survivor. And she said when she was diagnosed for the first time with cancer, her first fear was this. Oh, no, I'm going to lose all my hair. And she said, you know what, that's just natural. She said, that's, that's everyone's first fear. She says, when you go through the whole journey, then you realize just kind of how insignificant that fear was at the moment. But she said, but here's the significance of the hair. She said, it's a picture of what happened to me during this whole process. She said, when I lost my hair, I lost me. And she said, when the hair grew back, I was born again. That's what suffering does. Now we come to the grand finale. Of Romans 8. And what a finale it is. Paul asks these rhetorical questions. Well, if God is for us, well, who can be against us? And who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And who will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? And really, I think we're left asking this question then. These are awesome realities, but how is it that we can really know this and be assured of it? Well, we learned that's why the Holy Spirit comes into our life. He comes in, he assures us of these things. But look at verse 32, because this literally is the stake in the ground. This is how we can be assured of all these awesome realities. That God is for us. That no one can bring any charge against us. And and nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's because of verse 32, because God did not spare his son. That's the stake in the ground. In fact, this is a, is, is a direct quote right out of Genesis 22. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Where God so says to Abraham, Abraham, take now. Please take now thy son, thy only son, the son who you love, Isaac. And I want you to take Isaac to Mount Moriah. And I want you to offer him there as a sacrifice. When I read this, I'm just left asking, why is this here? Why, God? See, we, we, we read this story, and especially as a father who has children, the, the horror of this literally takes my breath away. Like, what kind of God would ask a father to sacrifice his son? And this son was everything to Abraham. The son was his precious. The son represented everything that Abraham had staked his life upon and trusted God for. And the Bible says in this story that for three long days... He and Isaac make their way to the mountain. I think of the anguish and the hell that Abraham must have been going through. And as they go up the mountain, I'm kind of asking myself, all right, what's going to get this father up that mountain? And Abraham tells us, God's going to provide. 
even if it's a resurrection, God's going to provide a lamb. And see, what we know today is that Abraham's son Isaac that day was spared. And the reason his son was spared is the same reason we are spared. It's because God, the Father, did not spare his son. And see, all these little stories, like the one in Genesis 22, they all point us to the ultimate story, because right at the beginning, right in the beginning, right in Genesis, God wants us to know what the whole Bible is about. It's about a father and a son who love each other with such intensity and perfection. And it's a story of a father laying his son on an altar on that very hill. And a son who lays himself on that altar. So that we can say now today what God said to Abraham. Now I know, God, how much you love me. You did not spare your only son. Do you know this, love? See, this is what changes me. This is what comes into me, and from the inside out, I'm different, I'm changed. Nicholas Wolterstorff, who was once a professor at Kelvin, wrote a book after the tragic death of his 28-year-old son in a climbing accident. The book's called Lament for a Son. And what you hear in the pages of this book is one of the most honest, gut-wrenching laments a parent could ever express in the wake of losing a child. And I don't know if you know this about Nicholas Wolterstorff, but he's one of the premier academicians and philosophers and thinkers of our day. And yet he says something in this book. He says, if anyone wants to know Nicholas Wolterstorff, he needs to know this one thing. I'm a man who lost his son. That's what Paul's saying here. If anyone wants to know the God of the universe, he knows, needs to know that he's a God who lost his son. And yes, why? Why would God do that? Why would he make a world where he'd know he would do that? Because he loves you. And when you love it, something so much, you stop at nothing to get it, to have it. And that's the power of the gospel. We look at this father and we look at this son and we know how much they love us. So Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit to assure you of this. As you struggle in sin, no more condemnation. As you suffer, God's working everything for your good. And even as you face death, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's why in all these things, 
We're more than conquerors. We can't lose. Because God has overcome. And the promise of Romans 8 is so will you. The communion table is set. Let's pray. God, this is too good. No human mind could make it up. When we look at the gospel, it's like we're looking at the Grand Canyon. And we're just awestruck by who you are, what you've done, and how much you love us. And this morning, God, may we come to your table as weak, needy, hungry, thirsty people who need the spiritual food of the gospel. And God, let us us take it in. And as we take in the realities of your love for us. God, let it change us. We just thank you, Jesus. And God, maybe this morning, in light of the fact that we are your pearl of great price, you're precious, that you didn't stop at anything to get us, maybe this morning we respond to that by saying, God, here's our precious. Here's my precious. I give it to you so that I can have you and all of you.